Greetings, and welcome to Catastrophe Cast. This is Walter, and today's discussion actually has two personal connections for me, and actually even has a connection to you, more than likely, that you may not even know about. That first connection is, for me, comes back in 1981, when my mom went away on a business trip. She went to some sort of business function, I was a kid so I didn't really know, in Kansas City, Missouri, and she stayed at the Hyatt. Now this was a big deal for me and I remember it really well because it was the first time that she had ever actually left us as a single mom. It was just her and us and uh, it was the first time she had ever left us besides the regular Monday through Friday work week. You know, after a few days at whatever this function was, she came home and you know, that was, that was that. Well, a couple of weeks later, we were all watching the news one night and I heard Kansas city. And of course my ears popped up because, Hey, that's where mom was. And then they mentioned the Hyatt hotel and my mom said, Hey, that's where I stayed. Now, if you haven't guessed it yet, the catastrophe that I'm talking about today is the Hyatt Hotel walkway collapse of 1981. So a little bit of background. The Hyatt Regency Kansas City is actually a really prominent hotel in the area of Kansas City, Missouri. It's on Hospital Hill in Kansas City, and it's called Hospital Hill because there's the Children's Mercy Hospital, which is... Uh, Children's Hospital, of course, and Truman Medical Center, right, just right adjacent to where the Hyatt Regency is. And on the other side of the hospitals is University of Missouri, Kansas City's teaching facilities for nursing, their nursing program. Well, today there's actually elevated walkways that go all the way from Union Station, which is no longer a train station, it's an elevated and and uh, temperature-controlled walkway, and it goes all the way from there all the way back to the Hyatt Hotel. It's really convenient and, you know, barely great for tourists because you're not going out in the elements. If you've been in the Midwest during, uh, during the summers, you know that summers can go crazy from, from very hot to just pouring down rain in an instant. Well... These walkways are, are beautiful and very, very convenient. And like I said, one of the end of those walkways is actually anchored in the Hyatt Regency Hotel, a really big bustling hotel for the area. A little bit of history about the hotel itself. There was a slight delay and the hotel opened on July 1st, 1980. And it really quickly became the place to be when you were in Kansas City. The front of the hotel had three elevated walkways. And they were above, in the atrium, above, because they were elevated, and connected the two sides of the hotel across a vast, vast open atrium. It is really, really beautiful. If you've ever been in the hotel and you are standing near the reception or sitting at the breakfast or and lunch dining area, you can look out and see just how, how beautiful it actually is. These elevator walkways, there was the third floor walkway, which was jutted out away from the second and fourth floor hallways. 
And these, I'm calling them hallways or walkways. It's, it's really a walkway. The third floor is a little farther away from the doorway, but the second and fourth were actually right on top of each other. Each walkway weighed around 64,000 pounds, and that was without people. How they decided to do this, because it, it's, it's actually really convenient to have these walkways available, was engineering-wise, they designed a continuous pipe. And it was on this continuous pipe. It held the fourth floor hallway and then continued on and then held the second floor walkway. So it was both suspended from the ceiling on this continued pipe with a bracket, you know, a, uh, an, I don't know what you would call it other than a bracket or a, a nut that would, that basically held that walkway in place. They did all the engineering, you know, concepts and everything. And, and yes, everything was, was supposed to be working fine. Engineering wise, it was perfect. It would hold because each floor was holding the weight of itself. And then that weight was being held by the ceiling anchors in the ceiling. And it was, you know, it was not only very functional, but it was very beautiful and actually helped blend into what the hotel's design wanted. Unfortunately, that's not how things worked out. So on the evening of July 17th, which is a Friday in 1981, it was just after one year since the hotel opened its doors. There were about 1,600 people in attendance that were in the atrium of the hotel that night. Like I said, not only was the hotel a hotel, but also a destination point. There were lots of people who wanted to go there because of, you know, what was going on, the bustling, you know, entertainment scene at the time. That evening of Friday the 17th, the hotel was actually holding a tea dance competition. There were hundreds of people who decided to come in and watch from all different vantage points. They were watching from, of course the atrium of the hotel, the ground floor, but also from the second, third, and fourth walkways that spanned the entire length of the atrium. There were diners who were actually eating atop the revolving restaurant above the Hyatt Hotel, and they said that they felt an explosion, some sort of, you know, some sort of commotion, but what felt to them like an explosion as they were eating, well, what was happening was just after 7 p.m., those 1,600 people who were spread out on the ground floor, second, third, and fourth elevated walkways, what happened was that fourth floor walkway, totally without notice, gave way, fell into the second floor walkway, and then fell completely to the ground below. It was instantaneous. There were people in interviews who said that they had been talking to someone who was standing right next to them. The walkway collapsed and that person was just gone. I mean, these people were standing next to others who were alive one heartbeat and dead before the next. The scene was just total chaos with dust and debris everywhere. 
if you actually look at the coverage and like I said, there will be the videos of this on catastrophecast.com. If you look at it, you'll just see that everything is, is covered in dust and blood. It's, it's just everywhere. Those who were uninjured or who were injured but could walk, they were told to leave so that they could, the rescuers could make it easier on those who were trapped. There were people who were, like I said, killed instantly, and then others who were trapped, and some of them were near death, some of them were not. One of the things that disturbed me, and I, in a way it disturbed me, in a way it gave me comfort, was that one of the rescuers said that those that were mortally wounded were told so and were given morphine to ease them, you know, out of pain and to stop them from breathing. So that, that really tells you what the scene was like. There were stories of survivors who were trapped. One man who was actually trapped, very young man, he was losing blood. His blood pressure was plummeting because of the loss of blood, and he was very near death. His leg was actually trapped underneath a beam, and there was no way that the beam could be moved in the time that they needed to be able to get him out and to safety. So his leg had to be amputated. There was a surgeon there, someone who had come off of a 12-hour shift at a hospital nearby and responded and unfortunately, this is a bit gory, but that leg had to be amputated by a chainsaw. Now, one thing, the article that I found that in, there was links in a Wikipedia article which led to interviews from survivors. I actually don't know if that person, because there was no follow-up, if that person who had their leg amputated, if they were still if they survived the ordeal or if they did not. So that is actually something I'd still like to find out. Underneath the rubble, there were a lot of people dead. And somehow there was one little blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl who was bloody because there was blood and, and dust everywhere, but she wasn't injured. Captain Joseph Thomas said that when they found her, he just pulled her into his arms as she cried and cried and cried and asked where her mother was. In all, there were 114 people killed because of the walkway collapse and another 216 people injured. This was actually the deadliest structural collapse in American history until the collapse of the South Tower of the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. So what happened? The failure of the second and fourth floor walkways all came down to, if you want to say it this way, and it would be quite appropriate, a matter of convenience for those people who built it. With also a bit of building management trying to save money thrown in. The first and the biggest issue was the design of the single continual pipe that would hold both walkways with bolts under each pipe so that the weight was distributed properly and there was no issue. Now, picture this. You've got a single pipe. It's secured in the ceiling with one board at the bottom of the pipe 
with a nut that has bolted it so that it it has the load that it's got, but also another board halfway up that pipe with another nut holding it in place. Those two boards are independent and all the weight that is needed is focused on where the pipe connects to the ceiling. That is how this is designed and also was in engineeringly perfect because it allowed each walkway to have the load factor that it needed without putting stress on the other walkway. But the manufacturing company and in conjunction with the engineering team, the manufacturing company decided that they wanted to do it differently. Now, why did they want to do it differently? Because it made installation easier. If they didn't have to thread both walkways onto a single pipe, it would make it easier for them to be in, in, be able to install these walkways. The new design that was put forth and actually blessed by the engineering company was there was the pipe coming out just as before that went to the fourth floor walkway and that pipe was ended with the nut so it would hold the fourth floor walkway. Then the second floor walkway was actually bolted to the floor of the fourth floor walkway above. If you look at it this way, that means that instead of each walkway holding its own weight, the fourth floor walkway had to hold its weight as well as the weight of the second story walkway. Each walkway weighed around 64,000 pounds. The post-mortem analysis showed that the way that they designed and it's the way that they had decided to install this, not designed, because like I said, it was designed differently, but the way they installed this, that the fourth floor walkway was barely able to hold it and the second floor without, based on how they put the connections together, without people. So right there, I mean, that right there is, is, is huge because you are guaranteeing that there's going to be, you know, some sort of structural problem because you're bypassing the safety functions and you're putting people at risk. Now, the engineering company and the metal fabricator and the installer, after all the failures and the lawsuits and everything started, everything, everyone started pointing fingers at each other. But they were all, in the end, they were all found to be in the wrong. The structural engineers and the company that were charged to erect the building were actually found guilty of gross negligence. Both the principal engineers uh, lost their licenses and the engineering company responsible for overseeing it also lost their license. One little note here, and it's not, it, it's quite, it's quite discomforting is, uh, those two principal engineers who lost their license actually moved and started practicing engineering outside of Missouri. And I don't know if they're still practicing. This would be 30 years later, but 
there are other buildings out there that they designed. Now, remember I mentioned earlier on that the hotel opened in July of 1980 after a slight delay. This was due to a partial roof collapse during the construction. The building management decided to bring in an independent group to study the failure analysis of that roof situation. And what was found was that company said, there is an issue with the metal and the metal fasteners that you're using. And they suggested that all metal fasteners, not just what were being used in the roof, but all metal fasteners throughout the entire building be checked. But unfortunately, they weren't. The company that was charged with building it requested on multiple occasions. Now, these are the people who who were in charge of, you know, the engineers who were in charge of building this, they requested on multiple occasions to have an on-site project representation so that someone could be there to know what was going on at all times and to supervise everything. But the owners, the Crown Center Development Corporation, they decided that, no, no, we don't need anybody on site because it would cost extra. The higher agency Skywalk Collapse lives on today in engineering classes and in engineering ethics classes at quite a few universities. There's actually quite a bit to read on out there. The University of Texas A&M, I'm sorry, Texas A&M University, they actually have a, a good ethics class, ethics engineering class on this that is a, a teaching program that's actually available to, to, you know, to the public. So if you want to go through and read, there's some really good stuff on and out there. And like I said, the five-part Annie uh, program, I will put those links up in the show notes so people can watch the program that was dedicated to this very topic. As I mentioned earlier, there were two personal connections. So I talked about my mom, the first one. The second connection for me is back in 2002, I actually started working for a large software manufacturing company in Kansas City. And as part of it, for all my training, I was actually put in the Kansas City Hyatt for several weeks. I, I basically lived out of the hotel for several weeks. And it was quite surreal being in that hotel on the 21st anniversary of this catastrophe because there were people who came to pay homage to those that had died. It was very, very surreal. Now, the connection to you. As I said, the hotel was built by the Crown Center Development Corporation, and it's owned by the Crown Center Corporation. Crown Center, that is a company, I don't know if, any, if it's familiar to any of you, but it's a company that's actually owned by Hallmark Cards. Now, Hallmark Cards had to pay $140 million to the victims and the surviving families of those people who were killed in this accident, killed and injured. So if you've actually ever bought a Hallmark greeting card, you may have helped pay for part of that $140 million settlement and didn't even know it. So that's it. I want to thank you for listening. And I also want to thank and give a little shout out to listener Jason. He uh, not only 
gave us a uh, iTunes review. Thanks for that, Jason. But he also gave us a few show ideas, including this one. Jason's an engineer, and this is a case study that he has studied. So, Jason, thanks for the ideas. If you want to get in touch with us, you can, you've got several options. You can email us at podcast at catastrophecast.com. You can go to our webpage, catastrophecast.com. And at the top of the webpage, there is a page that says, what do you want to hear? And uh, you can leave your suggestions there. We have a presence over on Twitter. Our handle is at catastrophecast. And we recently started a Facebook page. If you want to go like us over on Facebook, and that is at facebook.com slash catastrophecast. Thanks for listening.